0: We're living through a restoration comparable to that of 1660, the end of the English Republic and the return of Charles II. The anti-systemic populist projects of the right and the left of the past decade have either been absorbed and neutralised or sent into the wilderness. The literary critic L.C. Knights said of the period of the King's return at the end of the 17th century, that English culture had never been so defined by the aristocracy, either before or since. What seemed like the spontaneous interests, tastes and arguments of the common people were actually just reflections and mediations of conflicts within the elite. We found ourselves in a very similar position today, hyper-politicized, but with no substantive politics. Fortunately, this time round, in our post-populist condition, you have the popular show to act as your guide, David Slavik, my co-host. Why don't you introduce yourself to the viewers?
1: So I am really excited to be on Diet Soap uh, and talking about uh, you know what we always talk about every week on our podcast is is really like getting to the crux of what the difference between culture and politics is, you know, and interrogating, lifting the skin. You know, uh, we, we like we like to we like to bake it and boil it here and see, see where it goes. Um, my background is in D.C. politics. I'm a bit, a bit of an establishment guy, actually, which is quite, quite interesting for this channel. Uh, I worked in uh, Democratic politics for about 15 years or the Obama campaign. I worked for um, a, a very uh, centrist think tank called Third Way. Uh, And then I uh, ended up uh, doing some work for Tesla and then ultimately I uh, was radicalized and and worked for the Michael Brooks show and uh, where I was the producer and uh, went on and and helped create a number of other podcasts that you may know and love. so I, I'm just excited to be here and, and I love Doug's project. I love what he's done. Um, I love what Alfie does. I love what Ashley does. I love all the people on this this beautiful channel. And uh, James A. Smith is a, a once-in-a-lifetime uh, brilliant uh, guy. So it's, a, it's always a, a pleasure to be next to him.
0: Pleasure to work with you, David. We've been doing this side by side for about a year now. Uh, we were doing it for a little while before that with other collaborators, but as a as a pair, we're, we're a year old. Um, and over the last year on our podcast channel, we've spoken to some of the big names and some of the big casualties of the populist period, both on the left and the right. Uh, and we've been home for um, conversations across those conventional divides. So to people who uh, are encountering us for the first time, we we hope that you'll go back and look over uh, some of that stuff that we've been doing. Uh, And also, this is a great jumping on point. We're returning to video, which is where we we started, but we haven't done that for a long time. Uh, And basically what we're going to be doing is each week we're going to be producing a show like this, which will usually contain some interview elements. uh, And we'll be putting the full versions of the interviews that we do as well as um, as well as other extra stuff on our Patreon channel, patreon.com forward slash the popular pod. So if you're inclined to help us develop the project and help keep us afloat, get over there and you can listen to loads of extra stuff. But otherwise, we're very glad to be speaking to you uh, right here on the, the Diet Soap Sublation YouTube channel. We are the popular show. Uh, we've got a great show um, for you today. We're, uh, we're talking to a couple of guests. We'll have River Page joining us uh, live in, in, uh, in, in a moment. Um, he's uh, well, why don't you introduce River, uh, David? Uh, yeah. we, we had him on our show before.
1: So so River Page is uh, one of the sort of up and coming sort of queer writers. Uh, he actually he would he would balk at the term mm-hmm. queer because it's uh, he's he's a, he's a, a a gay southerner with uh, sort of like uh, heterodox opinions about different things. He was uh, a contributor to the Twink Revolution blog. He's written at Compact Magazine. He is um, re- writes at Splice Today where you'll find some of my writings on Canadian politics and you know he is one of those people who is, uh, you know, constantly pushing around the boundaries of what's acceptable discourse, uh, not because he's vulgar, because he's right. He's often, you know, pointing out the things that people don't want to talk about, acknowledging the the, the hidden histories of things that people don't are willing to acknowledge. And he, he is always, always pushing the envelope. And he, I'm really excited to talk to him again. We've interviewed him before um, at length. Um, he is really one of those sort of hidden talents he's he's young he's good looking you can't beat him he's great
0: <laughs> yeah we're going to be talking about the the don't say gay uh, bill and the controversy over uh the 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 American rights discovery of trans rights as a as a a, a kind of a, a big issue and I, I guess that's in some ways a kind of typical issue for us it's not a nettle we've grasped before yeah. but like Brexit, like COVID, like uh, the truckers protest, like um, BLM, any number of issues, we've tried to be a place where we can sort of like push into the corners that the left doesn't usually like to go into, Mm -hmm. to to try to sort of unpick the contradictions really in in the way the left often talks about these issues. So very excited to be doing that with River a little bit later on for the
1: for the people who may be listening from the uk who are you know familiar with the turf island type stuff you know uh this the the way that the american political project deals with sexual relations and sexual politics is so different it's Fascinating. And I, I, I've been following a lot of sort of the, the gender critical sort of uh, discourse in the UK, which is very interesting because it comes from a sort of a left project, like a, a radical feminist project. Whereas in the US, this is this is a resurgence of uh, somewhere of between Trump populism and the sort of um, uh, cultural populism of the, 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 the new right in addition to the old sort of uh, homophobia of the, uh, the sort of prior project of, of uh, the Christian coalition. So you'll see some of these really interesting things bubble up. And it's like a gumbo, you know, it's like you can only like, you know, French cooking is delicious. Uh, African cooking is delicious. There's Caribbean cooking. And then you go to Louisiana, and only in Louisiana can you have gumbo the way it is, right? It's spicy, it's hot, it's weird, it's got everything in it, right? The American project dealing with sort of cultural, cultural revolution is so interesting because it doesn't make there's no through line in some sort of academic way. It always bubbles up in a new way, in a melange, in a flavor, in a masala of sort of homophobia. (laughs) I find it really interesting because uh, in many instances, it makes sense to a certain group of people. But it is also not about the thing, which I think in the UK and some other instances, it is actually about trans women in bathrooms and things like that. This is not about that. This is about another project. It's about Rick DeSantis being president. It's about Greg Abbott being president. It's about Donald Trump being president. It's about the conservative. It's about the midterm elections. And it further makes me feel like things in America are never about what they're about, despite yeah. Americans being very direct. And I think that's really interesting. And I'm, I'm very passionate about this because I think it's the most American thing I've seen in a long time.
0: Well. Uh, Another sort of thing that viewers should know about us is that uh, as with uh, our collaborators on this channel, another kind of aspect of our discourse is psychoanalysis. And uh, if psychoanalysis teaches us one thing, it's that it's never about the thing. The thing is (laughs) never about the thing. Uh, No, th-
1: it's, it's, there's five levels here, I think yeah. and I, we can, we can, it's a, it's a, um, it's a five layer dip of, of weirdness, you know, and uh, it's, some of it's about the thing, you know, people are afraid of these type of issues, but uh, uh, you know, I think if, if the, the more you peel and we'll, we'll peel through this as we go into the conversation, I don't want to lead on too much, but yeah. uh, it's fascinating. So can you actually, can you give a little bit of a, what your sense of like a psychoanalytic frame of some of this discussion is?
0: Oh, man, well, this is going to be sort of drip fed through these episodes. But um, yeah, I I, I guess the heart of it is that uh, often in our arguments about politics and discussions of politics. We're, we're looking um, to explain what it is people want, like what, what is it people want when they cast a vote or when they join a political movement or, or support a, a particular politician. I guess what I've tried to do in my work, both the book that I wrote for Doug when he was still in charge of Zero Books, Other People's Politics, and, and the the other book that I wrote with my friend Mariana Fanebecker, Work Won't Work, in, in both of those books, what I've tried to do is like ask the, the basic psychoanalytic question of what what do we mean by wanting? You know, if politics is about what, what people want, if populism is often thought of as giving the people what they want, the, the question that I'm always interested in is, well, what do we mean by wanting in the first place? What, what's, what is that process of yeah. desire? And I think that that's often under um, under-examined in uh, the analysis of politics that we have. And, and, and that's something that I do try to bring. Um, the, the other uh, guests that we've got on this show is Carl Chauvin. Speaking of uh, the analysis of what people want, he's a pollster for Servation, uh one of the biggest polling companies uh, in the UK. But unusually, he, he also worked as an advisor both to Tony Blair and to jeremy corbyn um we've had a lot of the, the corbyn milieu um, on our show so it was really great to meet carl uh we spoke to him this afternoon we'll be dropping a, a segment from that interview uh, a little later on um and we were really responding to the the defeat of jean-luc Mélenchon in the first round of the french election a few days ago and the way in which that sort of puts a lid really on projects that both of us were extremely invested in the, these uh, the, the left populism projects of Jeremy Corbyn, Bernie Sanders and and Melenchon. Um, and yeah, the way in which in some ways, Melenchon, uh, his, his defeat does sort of demonstrate the ceiling, really, that that particular approach to um, building a left coalition mm-hmm Um, has ended up encountering. So looking forward to dropping a bit of that discussion uh, in in just a moment. Um, Hey, I think we better do that now. I see that River uh, is in the waiting room. So we're gonna give the viewers uh, a bit of what Carl has to say. Um, If you wanna hear more, then you're gonna have to get over to patreon.com forward slash the popular pod, where you can listen to the entirety of that interview. Uh, But now we're gonna say check you later, and um, we'll be back after this segment.
2: Mm-hmm. I mean, just just as an example of that, and um, you know, the, the right sort of. Traditional right voters are sometimes taking on a more anti-capitalist stance than voters on the traditional left. We we have a Nigel Farage in this country who you know is led the campaign for Brexit, effectively led the Leave campaign, and during the Brexit referendum, the, the the campaign to stay in the EU was totally dominated as an economic argument and saying, if you leave the EU, the, the economy is going is to collapse. And we have all these economic advantages staying in the EU, we have frictionless trade was, was suddenly became a, a big catchphrase, which, which no one had ever really thought about before. And Nigel Farage just came out, this kind of big hero of the right and big bogey figure of the left, came out and said, there's more to life than money. Hmm. And he was, you know, you had all these people on the left or like that have spent a lifetime arguing that there's more to life than money, and saying this guy's an idiot because he thinks there's more to life than money. Uh-huh. But he was speaking to people that actually, they would like enough money to live, but their whole economic system and their whole way of living means more, there's more to it than just money. You know, they they want to have a reasonable life and uh, they want to have their areas um in a way they used to for example
0: i mean as i i guess I had slightly underestimated the extent to which this melanchon defeat uh has sort of felt like putting a a lid on this whole kind of long 2016 adventure on the left um you know slightly belatedly from an anglophone point of view Um, and I think one thing that it should put to bed is the slightly hyperactive kind of manner on the left that we got trained in through those years of constantly responding to successive crises and constantly defending our guy against the latest set of accusations. We, We got used to like thinking that we you know even people who you know, don't have any more involvement than supporting the candidate need to always be there, ready on Twitter and, and, and elsewhere, uh, re- responding to everything. I think that part of our kind of countenancing of defeat and recognising that it is going to be a bit of time before we come back. Part of that should be uh, not thinking that we have to have the left wing answer to every successive um, issue from, um from the Russian invasion through to Will Smith slapping <laughs> Chris Rock, We'd, there doesn't need to be a left wing like policy response to each of these things because we don't have anyone who's going to enact left wing policies right now. It would be much better if we were sort of, you know, taking the lessons of the kinds of patterns that you've been describing and realizing that actually what we need to be doing is learning a sort of culture change where we get away from that automatic sympathising with elite liberal institutions and learn to understand where people are coming from in this impulsive, um, uh, uh, anti-systemic kind of um, uh, habit or impulse that, that as as you say, people are in. Um, And, yeah, to use this time to make sure that when we do get this next chance we're not simply uh, reenacting the same um, the same mistakes that we made over brexit and and over trump and i mean we've said on the show and i've said in in jacobin that that actually the the dilemmas that have presented themselves since our big defeats the the broad left has tended to actually react in just the same sort of slightly haughty from above uh, systemic way um so yeah the, the the outlook doesn't look terribly great but um I I, th- I do think that like some kind of accepting of the nature of the defeat accepting that um we, you know we, we've learned from this experience that the constituency is out there the combination of people does exist but we need to unlearn some of the bad habits that we exhibited during that whole period
2: I think I mean I totally agree with that because you know, Quite naturally, people I know on the left and sort of friends and colleagues are really depressed at the moment. They like say, what can we do about it? Where's where's the next Corbyn coming from? Where's the you know, uh, you know, we're, we're defeated. This is awful. So, I mean, it's it is depressing in a way. But I my personal view is certainly in Britain, the left as as it was constituted should not be thinking in electoral terms at the yeah. moment because it it will be defeated again um, because the votes aren't there and support's not there but it is far more a cultural shift um, I mean you're absolutely right that the left shouldn't have to have a sort of factional position on every single issue that comes up and shouldn't view life like that. I think there are two, maybe three main reasons why the left gets defeated by the right. Um, And I've mentioned some of them. It it fundamentally, when it thinks and talks about issues, it needs to think how, how can working class people and middle class people control what's around them. Um, How can they, and not not just in terms of big public ownership, but how can the left talk about issues in a way that makes sense to people and that they feel they can do something about it. And that, so that is, you know, that the best research on Brexit showed that that sort of sovereignty and anti-globalisation sentiment was driving the votes. that that is the left's that is a left wing sentiment which the left should start to own again. So when there when there are issues like how to respond to COVID, how to respond to climate change, for example, it should be thinking locally, not 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 in a geographical way, but it should be thinking about what solutions can people control and Push what you know in a in a way that doesn't get taken over by big technocratic global sorts of solutions which which leave people alienated and nearly ways worse off okay but i think i think to get the grips with those issues is is vital and i think one more thing which i haven't mentioned um which is one one of is this sort of Technocracy um, points. Um, You know, these days you've got increasing um, view that politics should be about managerialism, competence, and technocracy. So there's there's always a different Italian prime minister. The people never get a choice in who it is, but it's normally someone the technocratic elites have chosen, like the central bankers or someone. And I think. The left in particular has to articulate that politics shouldn't be about tech, the technocracy, managing, you know, there's people that can manage things. You can always employ people to manage things. The mm-hmm. politicians shouldn't be the ones that are saying they're the managers. That That's what management consultants do really, really badly. They manage things badly. <laughs> and there's too much acceptance on the left, certainly the center left, that that's the way that politics should be. We will manage this. We will put together a spreadsheet of plans which will be out of your control, but we'll do it for you. And I think that attitude to politics is failing and it's driving some of that disenchantment that we found in that polling of young people.
0: Yeah, there's, there's technocracy uh, in our own hearts on the radical left that needs to be exercised. Um, there's also the way in which we're constantly being blackmailed into supporting technocrats because otherwise the fascists will get in that incidentally is so important that melanchon has refused to thus far at least formally endorse macron he said not one vote should go Mm. to le pen but he has not endorsed macron i think that's actually very important and there's a way that he's got the potential to avoid um basically killing his movements in the way that bernie did by completely buying into uh the biden campaign um uh, yeah, yeah. I, we we need to just keep that kind of clear water between us and and the technocrats as 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 much as we possibly can, and need to be constantly conscious of that of that miserable association. I mean, after all, if we've learned anything of the past few years, we should have learned that those liberals who were kind of counted in as a crucial part of the left populist. Uh, constituency, they they won't support us. In the end, they are not on our side. If it had been Le Pen and Melanchon, you could see the mainstream liberal uh, headlines. Uh, Melanchon's anti-Semitism is actually more close to his heart than Le Pen's really is. You could see them making the excuses and muddying the water and, 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 and handing it to Le Pen just as they handed it to Boris Johnson. So, uh, ultimately, we, we need to break bread with the deplorables <laughs> because... You cannot count on the Liberals. We've tried that now. We need to try something else.
2: I mean, I think just just kind of, I think, I mean, one of the things about the Liberals, you say, is they're not particularly liberal anymore. And one one of the things the left could do is take on the mantle of some of that liberalism, Mm -hmm. which is really broadly embedded into the left's traditions. So, you know, just as an example, when vaccine passports were being um, introduced in in varying different ways certainly in Britain and around the world I thought that Z liberal um, and said so and but got very very little support from anyone on the traditional left yeah. and it was the right that were championing the case against vaccine passports now I don't know why that is but this, I mean, something something that was very popular in sort of mainstream polling theory a few years ago was that society is broken down into people that are open and closed. Right. Now, that was sort of virtue signaling from mainstream liberals to say that they are open because they don't like. Boris Johnson and they're the ones that are fighting this rearguard action against these populists who believe in a closed society. But they then expanded that theory to say the open is top with the open people are tolerant. We're we're the tolerant. And the people that are closed are authoritarian. Right? So and yet ever, ever increasing authoritarian measures seem to be support, being supported by a sort of technocratic, centrist establishment. And if it's people on the traditional right that are saying, now actually, liberal values are important, freedom of speech is important, then that is a real problem for the left because they have allowed their traditional values to be stolen by someone else
0: mm-hmm.
2: who, who will reap the, the and do reap the electoral benefits from that.
1: Yeah, I think uh, um I I don't know if this is a, the sort of the last question but it's one of the last questions I think I'll I'll, I'll ask for this uh, really interesting interview. Uh, yeah. I wanted to ask you about just how this idea that we have to be supportive of the most current thing they call it current thingism. Um, and we talked about and I, I think what I really liked about what you what you brought to light was that there is this idea that we have these core values that we need to stick to, that we have to consistently uh, be driving home, both in voter turnout and, and reaching out to people to organizing. Um, but one of the things I think that I see on the left is that each day there is something that we must be on the right side of the correct side of uh, that may be like very tangential to the actual like. Core project of the left. And I think that what we see is the left sort of pair off, you know, sort of like peeling an apple, and, and suddenly the, you know, it's just the, the core is gone because you cut it every which way, uh, where you, you know, you have to have the right opinion on uh, something that's going on in, in Ukraine, or you have to have the right opinion about, about another issue that maybe doesn't affect you. And these are all like, you know, important in the broad sense of like, you know, I think that we're all, we all uh, are probably mortified by what's happened to the Ukrainian people, et cetera, et cetera. But it doesn't necessarily go back to you know the core project. Do you do you think that it's possible in this information environment to actually do that if we are terminally online?
2: It's really difficult because that um there's sort of two different groups of people and one is much larger than the other. So I mean if you if you if you think about the left as such. There's the politically engaged left that spend their day on social media um, and have to have a position on everything, as you said, to have the right position on Ukraine or whatever. Um, And then there is everybody else. So So then you have the majority of people who aren't politically engaged, don't spend their days on Twitter and so forth. But they hold views that we would call traditionally left-wing so that might be working-class young people who want an anti-system approach want more control over the means of production and have liberal values about freedom of speech freedom of protest and so forth Okay, they are that is different from the more politically engaged left who obsess with Boris Johnson, whether he's a oh, I mean, he clearly is a liar, but they obsess with political um functions of the left. But so that's where you get into the left having to have a position on Will Smith, um, having to have a position on you know, having to having to comment on whether the left is pro or anti NATO enough or not enough. To live. That 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 bogs the left down in things which are totally distant from the people it needs to be reaching out to um, yeah and it,
0: and it lends itself it to really a constant sort of meta commentary where it's the it's the left talking about the left all the time
2: yeah I mean, uh, just, just just one more point when we talk about um people like messina and i mean one, one of the reasons why centrist political strategists and right-wing political strategists are more successful than left-wing political strategists is because the right and the center right have a better understanding of the issues that normal people are interested in whereas the left has a tendency to think the issues that are most important are the ones that they're interested in rather than I i think the right is consistently better at understanding this
0: That is Carl Schoben from Servation. Uh, check out his uh, his Twitter at Carl Servation. Uh, and if you want to hear the rest of that interview, uh, get over to patreon.com forward slash the popular pod. We're joined now, uh, as advertised by River Page, to discuss the Parental Rights in Education Bill, which critics have been referring to as the Don't Say Gay Law. This was Uh, signed into law by the Republican governor of Florida, Ron DeSantis, uh, last month. Uh, And it's one of over 156 bills relating to issues of gender identity that have been introduced in 39 states uh, since January last year uh, to discuss uh, the place of gender identity in uh, right-wing strategy uh, and where progressives might be going wrong in their response. Uh, We've got River. Uh, You're a friend of the show. I think uh, we're in a position to say it was great to speak Mm -hmm. to you before Christmas, along with the Twink Revolution guys. And uh, yeah, welcome back to the popular show. Yeah,
3: thanks for having me. It's great to be back.
1: One thing I want to mention right off the top, because River is not the self promoter that he (laughs) should be. And I'd say because he's a very talented guy who does a lot of great stuff. Is a piece in Compact Magazine, the new magazine uh, that is has, uh, you know, um, fellow uh, Diet Soap uh, host uh, Ashley Frawley is on the, the masthead and uh, a friend of the show Glenn Greenwald is on the masthead. Uh, lots of great people on that. Um, it's like one of those things where it's like, um, I think they tried to cancel it just for being what it was, but it's, it, it's really good and it's a really beautiful magazine that has. Um, you know, some of the best web design. And I do web design, like, casually in my, my, by, by part-time. And I, I'll tell you, it's just a beautiful, beautiful thing. And you have, what, what is your most recent article called?
3: Um, it's called Fake Gay History.
1: (laughs) Which I liked. I I thought that was very good. And what, what do you talk about in that article? Because I, I, I really, really do want to get that up front because I, I thought it was such a good piece.
3: Yeah, it's, um, It's about, like, the uh, role of, like, gay or queer history, whatever you want to call it, um, in education. Um, Because, you know, there's a lot with the Florida Bill and um, a lot of the other stuff that's going on right now. uh, There's a lot of, like, discords about, like, the teaching of LGBT issues in school. But insofar as I can tell, um, really the only places where it's uh, consistently done are uh, these four states. Um, I believe it's California, Illinois, New York, and Washington. I would have to I'd have to double check on that. Um, it's in the article. But um, four states where it's required um, by law to teach uh, about the history of the LGBTQ plus rights movement. And so what I, I did was I kind of delved into the history of, uh, or the the popular conceptions of that history, which are more often than not a historical um, at almost every pivotal point. And, um, you know, I had somebody reach out to me who lived in, who um, was a teacher in San Francisco. And he said, you know, there's no, curriculum, like no standard curriculum. They just say, you must teach this. And so there's no curriculum. And so it's just um, basically like Google Docs being shared back and forth between yeah. teachers. And so um, I don't really have a lot of faith that um, sort of dry, um, meticulously researched accounts of queer history that you can sometimes find um, you know, published in like university presses and stuff um are what's being taught in school Mm -hmm. at, at like high school levels in like california and illinois um and so yeah so i go through um you know the the idea that stonewall uh the stonewall riots were started by trans women of color that has no um no evidence to support it um
0: yeah, uh, the, 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 first the, the, the the asexuals, the first asexuals, uh, <laughs> asexuals in Auschwitz was the other. <laughs>
3: oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, the, the asexuals in Treblinka. No, I tried. I wanted to name the article the the ace in the striped pajamas, but I don't think they would have let yeah. me done that. that. Uh, but yeah, no, that
1: that's really interesting because I I think I I want to zero in on that because I think it's that there is something very interesting about the way identity has been changed like the way it's perceived as being like, way society deals with it. And then also like how people deal with it now. And um, this revisionist history of like Joan of Arc was a a trans woman or, you know, these types of things. Like we can all understand (laughs) that she like, Joan of Arc was gender non-conforming in a way. yeah. Yeah, right. But she wasn't a trans man she was Joan of Arc. Her name was still Joan, you know, it Was but it's yeah. like, you know, one of those things. But, uh, if she existed at all, that's, that's also very complicated, but it's, uh, there's a, a religiosity being, you know, pushed back on some of this stuff that I think is interesting.
3: Yeah. Well, there's a sort of like flattening of, uh, the concept of queerness. Um, you know, I cited like, uh, what is his name Terrell, star jermaine Terrell, <laughs> yes um the guy who uh, he's like Ukraine's a hero <laughs> a guy he's like doing journalism in ukraine and he's like um i'm a black guy and like the azov battalion is cool or, or you know this is like kind of crazy but uh he um was he came out i guess like as straight i don't know it was like very confusing yeah. where he was like it's hard uh <laughs> For black men to come out as queer, um, you know, because I'm uh attracted to all kinds of women, not
1: men at all. Yeah, I like I like <laughs> chubby girls. I yeah, like, he's, I like
0: he's, girls. He specified that you know and the strange thing is I, I realized I was queer. And the funny thing was that I've never been attracted to a man. Um <laughs> yeah. And I mean, this is pure comedy, but of course it, it, it should set off the spider sense and you think, right, this guy is a trans chaser. Absolutely yeah. nailed well, he, and, and that's what if, turned out to be the case. I'm sure trans people wouldn't thank uh, him for sort of revealing no, I mean, he's queer the thing is on is the basis that of if, being if, if trans women are women, right
1: then he's not queer. I mean, that's the other thing. And I, like, you know, there's, there's these dynamic tensions in these internal dialogues where everyone wants to have an identity. But actually, in many ways, they're excluding other people's identity. So, you know, like I I, I have a, I'm firmly on the sort of trans women are women because why not? And, you know, my, people have, you know, we've had we have a guest on who had different opinions on that. But but I'm like, OK, that's a, that's my starting point. But you don't get to be queer because you like, you know for whatever, you know, like, I don't, you know, there's a lot of stuff on Pornhub, you know, it doesn't make you, it doesn't make you homosexual.
3: Yeah. Yeah. You're, you're sort of like, um, I guess like kinkiest aspects, like don't necessarily have to be formed into an identity, you know, like there's a sort of usefulness to like using the term gay because like it explains why I have a husband and not a wife, you know, um,
0: But and, I mean, when we you
3: start getting into these sort of like niche things, that's when things get more complicated. Now everything is mm-hmm. on a on a, on a spectrum, which in some cases is like, I I guess like kind of <laughs> true. Like there's like um, sort of like bisexuality and like um, you know, guys who might try it once or like you know, but not really enough to like pursue it or like be like that be a part of their identity or you know complicated sort of things like that but like when you start talking about asexuality spectrums where it's like you know you're porny sometimes but not others i'm like okay well that's just being a person um uh, but all of these things are getting backtracked into history so you know i cited the uh the TikTok, which was dug up by that lady who runs Libs of TikTok, who, I mean, I can't really approve everything that goes on in that account. I think she's kind of in, in a little too deep, but, um, <laughs> <laughs> saying, you know, the, um, it was basically a teacher, um, somewhere in Missouri, I know because she was dodged, uh, by the Libs of TikTok lady, um. This kind of gross but uh basically her her thing was she was like well you uh you want to be sneaky and you can like signal to kids that you support queer rights or whatever um by putting a pink triangle um up <laughs> and kids look yeah, for that i'm like okay well first of all no they don't yeah, but you know, second yeah. uh and then she goes on to say um you know this was used in the concentration camps to designate uh uh i I think she I don't think she actually said lesbians I think she said women who are attracted to women or something I don't know why yeah um and which is maybe a, maybe a better
1: people. maybe it's a better distinction yeah I mean.
3: <laughs> yeah um and, and asexual people um and it's been appropriated by the queer community yeah. um and the second part of that is true um it has been like appropriated by this sort of amorphous community of people who call themselves queer um which isn't the same thing as gay or even trans really at this point it's kind of become uh i almost at this point just associate the term with um People who are too progressive to just call themselves straight. I, I don't know. Like, it yeah. I mean, there's way. a
0: couple of interesting things there. The, the fact that in that, um, in that clip, the, the, there was evidence of that standard kind of woke one-upmanship where you can't right. say the obvious example because if you do, you know, you're being kind of basic. So you couldn't say gay men were put in concentration camps. You've got to like choose some other more niche identity because that's too obvious um the other thing like yeah, is yeah. that the the funny thing is even if you go back in the actual sort of writing of queer theory the point isn't that like oh there are some cool arty people and they are queer it, like if you're reading eve sedgwick for example between men the whole point is that like normative uh, heterosexual relationships Have to constantly like block out the possibility of same sex desire. That's what, like, at least one kind of major strand of queer theory is all about. That so called normal sexuality is always kind of negotiating like the fact that it has same sex intimacy in it i mean it's put very well by joe exotic uh in tiger king when he, he uh he's trying to seduce like this young straight guy uh, and he says well you know if uh when you're watching porn and and the guy's giving it to her do you want him to have a big uh cock or a small one and the guy says a big one i guess and he says well you ain't that straight and there's a great that's a really, really kind of good example of that of, of like that <laughs> i'm not going to say that's it, very that's funny because i've, I've heard that quiz, you know?
1: far yeah. before joe exotic that's a very funny um uh, joke that's i think that's a uh, i, I want to say that it's uh god it's a, it's an old comedian that he borrowed that from and i can't yeah. um, and I,
0: but the, was, but the point is that like yeah. it's not like oh well i i'm as you say sometimes i'm not horny and therefore i must be quit this kind of pathologization of like quite Unremarkable yeah. sexual experiences, right. and then turning it into a sort of badge of honour. Yeah. Um, I mean, that, that, yeah, that, okay. These are these are um, all parts of the like human fabric of how people are yeah. negotiating sexuality at the moment. But it has produced a hell of a lot of material on TikTok and elsewhere yeah. that has been very, very easy to exploit for. Yeah the right in this project so maybe we could move on to that like that project what what do you really think is at the kind of core of this sort of turn to gender on the part of the right right now
3: well i think it's a turn to gender on the part of the left Mm -hmm. or of the um sort of uh, lgbt activist sort of sphere because if you think about like I mean, the sort of, like, regular run-of-the-mill gay guys and lesbians who just wanted gay marriage or whatever, they got it, and so they went home. But this, like, machine that had been built around that movement kind of had to keep going. And so what do you what do you do if, you know, gay people are sort of, like, broad, broadly tolerated, gay marriage is legal? Um, I guess you can kind of fight for, like, anti-discrimination in like employment laws and stuff, but most of that had already been decided by the courts and stuff too. So there's really nowhere to go on that. So you have to kind of turn to, to gender. Um, So like, you know, um, and then that breeds, uh, I guess, in a sense, like a whole new host of people who kind of want to be um, the hot political subjects of the day, which is how you, you know, you end up with people who are, trans but like not really Um, (laughs) and so I think that um, and also it's just it it became like they were like okay well now we have to have the conversation about trans rights and so the conversation starts going and because it's such uh, it had to be expanded because I think actual trans people who transition are such a minority. Mm -hmm. Um, Like if you look at actual statistics, the number of people who identify as like non-binary far outweigh the number of people who I guess we would have called like transsexuals or something back in the day, the people who actually like kind of do like a medical type thing and transition. Um, So it had to basically like um, the entire country had to like have this Judith Butler ass like conversation about gender and um i think that uh provoked the reaction that can be expected and i don't think it's really just coming from like it is coming from the right but there's also people who have not traditionally considered themselves on the right who are um who have a problem with that. I mean, I think, I guess the most classic sort of example would be like the old school, like second wave feminist lesbians, you know, um, James would probably, there's a, it seems to be a lot of them in the UK. I don't, I don't Oh know yeah.
0: Why. Yeah. It's one but, of our but, um, finest exports.
3: Right. Yeah. Um, not exactly, you know, uh, Jerry Falwell types mm. um, complaining about it. Um, but I think from the more traditional American right, it's, it comes from the, the sort of same place it's always come from. You know, like I grew up evangelical. I remember my um, mom going to the school and yelling at a teacher in the third grade because she gave me a Harry Potter book because she was like, you need, like I, I was reading it like a higher level. And she was like, here's like a big thick book, read this. And my mom got, like, so upset about it. Um, And it kind of feeds into this, like, evangelical persecution complex that's kind of hard to understand if you didn't grow up in it. Uh, But basically, the worldview is, like, we are in, like, this cosmic battle of um, sort of good and evil. And, like, the forces of evil are always trying to... uh, corrupt you and corrupt like the sort of naive uh sort of like faith and, and almost not pure because they believe everybody is born with sin but like the sort of innate purity of children and yeah. all of that um it's it's all very like familiar to me and the same thing happened with like homosexuality but i think you know it had just kind of been accepted that um that battle had been lost and that gay people would have to kind of be tolerated on some well. And I think there was like a, people wanted to tolerate them, even if things get a little complicated, you know what I mean? Like, I mean, my mom, I still talk to my mom like three times a week, but she didn't come to a wedding because that was like a moral line. She couldn't cross, but I'm still her son. And there's like, because there's so many more actual just like gay people than there are like trans people, um, who, you know, people had to, I guess, kind of like, um, you couldn't quite demonize people in the same way anymore. But I think that the, um, the trans thing is still sort of new, despite all the people who identify as non-binary who just, just look normal. Um, that in terms of like actual trans people who transition not everybody knows someone like that and um if you don't then um it can be easy to demonize those people but i think there's also just i don't know it it, it sounds fucked up to say but people aren't <laughs> when people see, like, a sort of, like, Leah Thomas-like figure, um, just sort of, like, a kind of... a trans woman who used to be a straight guy, who's, like, competing in elite sports, who's, like, jacked and huge and kind of, like, imposing, that inspires a different sort of reaction than what trans people who... Or trans women specifically were traditionally conceived as, which is like the sort of like hyper effeminate gay man who became a drag queen and then got plastic surgery and
1: got like a pair of toots.
3: Like, yeah, you know, people
0: are actually pretty comfortable with that. Archetype. They are. Um, in, in, in fact, I think
1: it had become sort of part of culture in, yeah. in a broad sense. The, 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 I think that what's very interesting about Leah Thomas is that it, it it puts two different parts of American culture against each other. Americans have always loved camp. I mean, that's always been really important to American culture. And in fact, I think the English uh, sort of expression of sort of transness and camp has always been sort of an uglier presentation. It's about it's yeah. about Benny Hill. It's about all these other things. Whereas in the states, you had sort of these sort of like. Prince type figures who are like lovely and beautiful and feminine, but also masculine. And, and there was a this uh, sort of yin and yang of, of culture that really worked for our sort of sense of presentation. Mm-hmm. And when you get, but Americans are also really deeply ingrained in sport, in a way that uh, a lot of cultures aren't. And this sensibility of like fairness, and sort of meritocracy and american sort of gumption is running up against sort of the sense of american tolerance and i i I find that really interesting because i have friends who i know have gay friends who know trans people who the sport thing has set them off and these are normies these are not people like we know like in our twitter world but these are like normies who are like like this leah thomas they're like i this is too much too much And uh, they're all jocks, of course, or they're like ex-military guys or whatever. A lot of them, you know, like I said, they have gay family. They they know trans people. But the sport thing just sets them off in a way that is uniquely American. Uh, The U.K. has a little bit of a different reaction because of sort of the idea of innate femininity and, you know, radical feminism. But I don't know. Can you address that a bit? Well, I think the sports
3: thing is like that's definitely true because we have this. I think it's a sort of broader myth of like meritocracy in America, you know, um, and traditionally sports have been kind of the one place where that is true. It doesn't like, if you grew up, grew up, you know, poor and without, you know, regardless of where you come from, if you have the talent um, in sports, you can kind of make it if you work hard, you know, I mean, a lot of it is like genetic lottery, but um I think it was Fran Lebowitz who said that, like, talent is, like, um, you know, you can't buy it, um, you can't inherit it, it's it's just there. Um, and I think that that's true for sports, and I think, you know, that does sort of set people off. Um, but I think it goes beyond just what comes after sports is, like, the locker room, and I think that's also something that makes people uncomfortable and again it's um I think that it's exacerbated by the sort of well one like the kind of non-binary thing and also this um this more postmodern I guess approach to gender where it's like well you can't really define what a man or a woman is but if a person calls themselves a woman they are a woman that, that wasn't always like how the how it was with trans people like there used to be like you had a transition like the 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 transition um as in like taking hormones and having surgeries and stuff as like an operative sort of thing um with the ultimate goal being to pass is i think still a goal for a lot of trans people but there's a certain very vocal subset to where it's like you know, no, like I don't have to pass. I don't have to take hormones if I don't want to, I don't, or maybe I do have to take hormones, but whatever. And again, the, um, I think that the, the trans lesbian thing complicates it a lot more, um, because it is, um, usually like a difference in physical uh, appearance, um, where, you know, you, you don't have like dainty gay guys who kind of looked like women before they transitioned and acted like women before they transitioned. You have these guys who, you know, uh, used to be athletes like male athletes or um, I don't know, 4chan posters. It seems like, you know, mm-hmm. like just kind of like, kind of gruff um, sort of masculine uh straight guys transitioning and um it just it comes off differently and it's a very uncomfortable like nobody wants to have that conversation really um
0: i think you were onto something is, when, you, when like you were describing the, the sort of machine the, the the machine that was gifted by the gay marriage uh campaign and then you know people were kind of in those roles in those in ngos in those nonprofits and had to kind of keep the thing going. I think that there's probably quite a lot of the explanation uh, lies in that. That um, I, I, I'm, sure, I'm sure there are other views on this, but it seems to me as if trans rights, as maybe more than any previous frontier of civil rights, has been a quite top-down affair. And as a result, um, there's been a sort of unevenness of... Um, implementation of pro-trans policies so that you have sport you know sports having you know being quite far ahead of the rest of the population elite institutions being quite far ahead of the rest of the population and the broad left actually you know not really thinking that it needs to do the work of convincing people on the ground in the same way the fact that we've had pretty much you know, ten, I feel like it's been ten years that I've been hearing people say that you can't even, even get into a debate about trans identity because that's giving up too much to you know the, the transphobes to even have the debate in the first place. And of course, people you know often want to have debates in in bad faith, but you know them's the breaks, and you you, you just have to be prepared to take on the the subject. So I, I guess what I'm saying is that there's been a sort of an odd shape to this where um certain kinds of elite institution have very thoroughly embraced trans rights like before um you know other people have have really had a chance to even hear what the arguments are and that leaves the the cause like vulnerable in quite a lot of different ways and, and one of those ways is that it's being exploited by the american rights right now Some of that right-wing critique of how these issues are being presented and dealt with, I I think that we'd probably want to give some time to and and to take seriously and and probably would find that that there kind of is a point there. Elsewhere, it is just common or garden bigotry of the same kind that we heard about gay marriage and you know all this stuff about gr- groomers and marjorie taylor green saying the democrats are the party of paedophiles you know it's the it's the it's the old homophobic playbook i don't want to let the right off the hook for that but I, I guess the point is that this there is something particular about the way trans rights has played out that is quite different to the way in which previous causes were exercised and i, and I think it's got a lot to do with that that kind of machinery of like thought leaders that haven't really um, had to convince anyone on the ground.
3: I think you're absolutely right. It has been very much top down. Um, Also a smaller population, you know, not everybody knows like a trans person the way that, um, you know, by the time gay marriage was legalized, everybody had like a gay cousin or whatever, gay coworker. Um, And I don't know if you'll ever get to that point with trans people. I don't know if there's enough of them, Um, you know, and of course, like you said, some of it's like a lot of old school bigotry. I think a lot of it is also the the permanence, I guess, of transition is something that makes people uncomfortable, especially when you're dealing with children, because, you know, if you remember, it's... (laughs) It was even a phenomenon where I grew up, which was, like, the middle of fucking nowhere in East Texas. Um, mostly girls, um, you know, coming out as, like, bisexual and, like, not really, you know. But, like, it was kind of, like, um, a sort of, like, trendy thing to do and maybe, like, make out with a girl at a party or something. But, like, every, literally every woman I know who who did that when we were, like, in high school or middle school is, like, married to a man now or, like, in a long-term relationship with a man Um, And I've heard that in some places, like more liberal places, there are also guys doing that, too, who are like not actually gay. Um, And um, I feel like that's a little bit more harmless, because even if you do like have gay sex like once, like you're after it's if you don't if you find out you don't like it, like you just don't do it again. You know, like it's kind of like that's the end of it. You're like, oh, that was a weird
1: yeah I mean, I mean,
3: but if you if you with the transition thing i think that it does make people deeply uncomfortable the idea of like letting kids transition and um particularly like that being kind of like at least like a social transition something that's like um uh sort of uh accepted by the schools. And I know there's been certain situations where it's like they don't tell the parents that the kid is wanting to go by different pronouns and different names and stuff. Um, And that's one thing. And I think that's what this Florida bill had a lot um, the don't get say gay bill had a lot to do with. But I think that the medical transition uh, really does freak people out when it comes to kids, because I think, you know, kids are teenagers don't really know what they want you know most of them and, and i think that it's um you know i'm sure like there's people who do it and like they're perfectly happy but the the detransitioner phenomenon i i mean i've talked to some of these people i mean it's a it, it's a real thing um and abigail Schreier wrote a whole book about it i know people got mad about that but i mean it it, it is a phenomena um it's not a right wing talking point these are actual experiences that people are having and i think they need to be taken seriously. And the fact that they're not, and if you bring them up, you're kind of seen as like a bigot, I think really, really bothers a lot of people.
0: Yeah, I think we we really want to um, deep dive and carry on debating like that particular aspect of the question. Um, as we're at the time we are, I'm just going to thank the YouTube audience for watching this first episode of the popular show on the Diet Soap Sublation Media channel. Uh, to carry on listening to our discussion with River, get over to patreon.com forward slash the popular pod. Thanks for watching.